That would be great. Would you mind helping? Yeah, that would be great. Would you mind helping spread these out? Thank you. While Patrick is spreading these out, uh, we are again um, taking a look at the mission of God in all the scriptures and trying to make sense of this big picture of the Bible, what the Bible in some ways is all about. Um, We are making the case that running through every page of the scriptures is God's commitment to uh, His own mission, uh, to His own mission to make His name known, to make His name great, to uh, see His people flourish, to see the world remade, to see sinners brought home to Him. Uh, And it is a wonderful, wonderful thread. Let me share a brief story with you as I ask you a question. Uh, This a defender, a defender. There's a, uh, and Martin, you need one? Okay, great. Sorry. Uh, Being on the, at the bus stop, so uh, I probably wrongly took care of some, uh, he was threatening my brother and uh, that was my job to protect him. I can remember when I was in seminary, I needed a defender. Uh, I was a first year uh, student and early in, um, Really, as late, late September, my first year, I went to the doctor and thought I'd pulled a muscle in my back. And about a week later, I went to the doctor, thought I was just a muscle. And he said, hey, you have a collapsed lung. And uh, I didn't need any treatment for it, thank goodness. But in the following spring, uh, I was home for spring break and I was working out and my lung collapsed again. And I did need treatment for it. I needed surgery for it. And so as I was going in and having the surgery done and came out, everything went well, thanks Thanks be to God. The doctor came in and said, Hey, I want to let you know that your insurance isn't uh, paying any of your claims. And uh, we don't really know what's going on, but they're saying that this is a pre-existing condition. Well, I was stuck, uh, sadly, because of, uh, of some things that, uh, in, my, in my estimation, uh, that, that was a, I was a real fall-through-the-crack sort of situation where I was stuck with tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills because something was wrongly attributed as a pre-existing condition. I don't know about you, but where have you needed justice? Where have you needed defense? Where have you needed someone to be behind your cause? Because uh, you, have, you live in a world where there's injustice. Well, you might remember as well, there was a little old, old widow. She uh, was making her case to a judge uh, in Jesus' day, he tells the parable in Luke 18 of a widow who constantly goes before the judge and says, will you hear my cause? Will you hear it? Will you please defend me? And that tells us a little something about the way that uh, justice was seen in those days. And that is, if you do not put me in the right, O judge, I am helpless. I've got nobody. I've got nothing. I just simply say all that because um, today we're going to look at, in some ways, um, a little, well, actually a lot of ways, what Darwin was talking about this morning, or he will talk about if you're coming in the later service, and that is the idea of kingship and what a king was. You see, if you're fans of the Lord of the Rings, you know uh, that the whole story is predicated upon when will the rightful king, when will the rightful king finally come? And bring His rule and His justice over all the land such that we as a people begin to flourish again. That really is the longing of the whole whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament. 
And uh, it's the prayer that Jesus himself taught us to pray, right? We pray, O oh Lord, what? May your kingdom come on earth, even as it is in heaven, because we long for it. Well, that's what we're going to kind of spend a little bit of time today. I don't know where you need a defender today, but we're looking today at the mission of God of the Bible, the mission of God to David, and in particular through the temple as well. Let me pray for us after this introduction here to get us thinking about things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your time uh, that you give us to study and to look at your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, and our minds that we might study understand you? Would you give us good conversation? Would you help us to love one another, to listen well, and to uh, that our hearts might be encouraged uh, by your grace to us this morning? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, there you'll find on your sheets that uh, just a little bit of recap that God has been faithful to his promise. You'll remember what happened. God made man in his image in the garden to be in relationship with him. Man blew it, didn't he? I mean, I don't know about you, but... um, If things would have gone the way I would have done things, here is the thickness of the way the Bible should have been. It should have been that thick. See it? See it? That thick, right? Sorry, I've got all sorts of junk falling out of my Bible. Why should it have been that thick? Because after Genesis chapter 3, when man blew it, God and His would have been completely just to have just said, all right, that's it. We're done. We are done. But in His kindness to us, He said what in Genesis 3.15? There's going to come a day where the seed of the woman is going to literally smash the head of your offspring, serpent. Where I'm going to come, I'm going to put everything back together the way it was supposed to be. And He has promised to do that through Abraham. We looked last week at how He did that through Moses and through His uh, life and ministry. And now, sad to say, we have to fast forward almost 500 years to get to this man called David. The time is somewhere around, more or less, 1050 B.C. Israel has prayed to God. They have said, will you please give us a king like the nations? Even though God has said, you don't want a king. They'll they'll take your sons. They'll take your daughters. And uh, the taxes will be exorbitant and you don't want a king. And they say, no, 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 you don't understand. We want a king like the nations. And so he says, all right, well, here comes Saul. He's the first king. Saul's kingship is not good at all. And then you remember who follows King King Saul, a young shepherd boy. God calls him to himself and says, you're a man after my own heart, more or less. And David himself is anointed king somewhere around the year 1010 B.C. David's heart, his story is as vast as uh, the Bible itself. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time recounting that. But there's a point in David's life where he, uh, where he and his friend, the prophet Nathan, are talking and he says basically more or less, I want to build God a house. Y'all remember this? We're somewhere around 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go ahead and turn there. It's going to kind of be a key text for us today. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We won't read it all, but I want you to know this is a very important text as we think about kingship, especially in the life of God's people. Because God uh, makes a promise to David that we would believe that it finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Believe me, all this is connected to mission, but I'm trying to build a little bit of a case. Um, you remember in Second uh, Samuel 7, um, 
He says, I want to build a house for you, O Lord. But uh, the prophet Nathan hears from God and he says, uh, he says this, and I'm in verse uh, 10. And he says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them, that's the Lord talking, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, for from that time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, here we go. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Okay, push pause. It's pretty interesting. David's saying, I want to build you a house, O Lord. And the Lord turns to David and says, Nope, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. He wasn't referring to a literal bricks and mortar sort of deal, but a line, a seed line where that he will always and forever keep one of his sons on the throne. That one of his sons will always be the king of Israel. That's the promise that he's making right here. And we see that who in great David's greater son, who is none other than our blessed Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful thing because if you long for a king, if you need defense, if you want somebody to watch over you and you want your life to flourish... You need a good king. And so here we see the establishment of this kingship. I'm now on this main point, the promise made to David. The promise was that God would build David a house. David wanted to build God a house. Rather, it would be not him, but his son Solomon, who would in fact build a house for God. That's because he says this, that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up an offspring there in chapter uh, 7, verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That is both uh, with reference to his immediate son and to his line as well. And then we learn in 2 Kings, First uh, Kings chapter 8, you can turn there, Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8. Here it is. Um, King Solomon is now... Uh, in reign, he has, David has passed away. His son Solomon is the king of Israel and Judah. The kingdoms are still uh, together at this point. And so uh, we see in verse, uh, we see in these, at this point that the temple has now been built. Everything has come together. Everything is finally finished. And uh, we are together now seeing uh, Solomon uh, being a king. And listen to what he says there in 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O God, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you. He goes on and he speaks about, um, in verse 27, I, I love this line, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This great picture that even Solomon knew when the Lord would rest upon his temple that it couldn't contain him. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful picture there. But why would this matter so much? Well, um, I think it's very important for us to see that the promise made to David from the Lord was one that was going to continue his mission to continue the mission that God would make Himself known to the nations. He was going to do this not only through mission, but particularly through His kingship as well. You see, if you were here this morning, you heard Darwin proclaim that even that our Lord Jesus is, uh, that He um, 
isn't merely our Redeemer, but He is our King. He is the one who oversees all things, and we long for His reign and His rule. And He will establish His throne and His kingdom over against every single kingdom that ever was. Uh, If you'll remember this, if you want to go there in your Bibles, you can. Mark chapter 1. Have you ever heard of the gospel being... uh, Well, let me... me, I'm tipping my hand. Let's, Let's interact with this. When you think of the word gospel, what often comes to mind? Just throw that out there. What you got? Gospel. What comes to mind? Good news. Okay, great. What else? Anything? John 3.16. Okay, great. I think of the angry man at the University of Tennessee who was yelling at me. He was dressed in all black and he was telling me if I didn't believe the gospel, I was going to go to hell and this sort of thing. He was really angry at Tennessee that day. I don't know. It was, he had, probably had a bad breakfast or something. But uh, what else do you think of when you think of gospel? Grace. Okay, great. Well, it's funny, when you look at Mark chapter 1, which, you know, we're going through the book of Mark this, this spring. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Mark 1, he says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and he proclaimed the gospel of God. So there we go. Ready? And he says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, hey, what's the gospel all about? Oh, it's about repentance. It's about belief. It's about faith. Well, is that it? Nope. It's about the kingdom of God coming. It's good news that we have a good king coming to reign over us and rule over us. Now, that bumps up against our you know, Western American sensibilities because, dadgummit, we like democracy. Everybody wants a vote. Everybody needs a voice. The Bible confronts us and says, eh, the world of the kingdom is one of a kingship. It's a monarchy. And that's not problematic so long as you have a good king. you got a bad king, things are problematic. I'm trying to set up here this idea of seeing how God's mission is in fact going forward. We remember uh, back from last week that God made a promise in the book of Exodus too. I'm now moving to what was that house. uh, This idea that God would dwell uh, with His people. In Exodus chapter 29, we read this, that I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. We got the promise last week that God was not going to send Israel, His people out, to not be with them ever. He was going to live rather in their midst. God had promised that He would make His presence seen and known among His people. They would not do life alone. But we have progressed in the history of God's people. That early dwelling place Uh, known as the tabernacle, which was a tent which was portable, was to help them be able to move around in the wilderness and as they came into the land to have a more stationary home. But by Solomon's time, we see that tabernacle fading away and there being a brick-and-mortar place for God to dwell called the temple. Now, this is very important. In that trans, uh, that, that change from a tent to bricks and mortar, there were, however, uh, certain things that were very similar in its architecture. If you've heard this already, please bear with me. It will be of major importance where we're going. So hang with me on this. That the tabernacle was a portable tent and the temple was permanent, but both had this tripartite structure. What do I mean by that? I mean three different sections, okay? Three different areas. If you think about the building itself and then a courtyard. The courtyard was seen as one of those sections where really any faithful Jew could go. 
There would be offerings made. You could bring your animals to the sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system to the priests there. This was the place of worship. But once you moved in and out of that courtyard further into the center of things, you entered the holy place. Holy place was where the priests worked. It's where they made their living, so to speak, and no regular Israelite could go in there. You just you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have been allowed. It would have been like a, um, a non-scrubbed-in person going into an operating room. That wouldn't have happened, okay? But then, further in, as it were, there was another place called the Most Holy Place, where only one person, the high priest, could go into but once a year. That day was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, where the sacrifice, where the, the uh, priest would go in and make sacrifice for the sins of all of God's people once a year. Were there other sacrifices going on throughout the year? Oh, absolutely. But the point I want to show you is this, is that there are increased uh, gradations where only certain people could go. Because why? Because it was seen as that God Himself was resting, living, and dwelling in that most holy place. Hey, Israelites, where does your God live? They would have said, you see that big temple over there? Inside there, there's a room. It's called the most holy place. And that's where He dwells. That's the way they would have thought. That's just right in the way they think. Now, why was that house uh, so important? Moving on here. Uh, It reminded Israel of God's presence. The tabernacle temple stood as a constant reminder that God was, in fact, with them. This was to be a profound encouragement to them. And this is critically important. While they knew that God was their creator and He was Lord over all of life, they believed that God was specially present with them in the temple, especially in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Those are synonyms. But secondly, it also reminded Israel of their covenant obligations to worship. That the temple was the place of worship stood to remind Israel of how they were to live life in light of the fact that God now dwelt with them. In other words, God lives with you, so what? They would have never gone, no big deal. You know, just twirl your thumbs. No. Well, how now do we live if the king of the universe is living in our midst? How do we now reflect this wonderful, wonderful covenantal relationship that he has with us and no other people? They were to respond in all areas of life with adoration, confession, repentance. And additionally, their lives were to be marked out by mercy. I simply want to just say this. The house was important. The dwelling place was important because it reminded God's people of, their, of God's grace in their lives. They did nothing to earn His presence. We like to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and say the God of the Old Testament was a mean, angry guy. There was no grace in the Old Testament. But grace is chocked full of the Old Testament. They did not, in fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, God says this, it's not because you were the most of the people that I chose to make my covenant with you. It's because you were the least and the fewest. And we also like to think, well, there's no law in the New Testament, and that's just not true either, okay? There's law all through it. So this, this distinction of trying to say Old Testament's all about law, New Testament's all about grace, I think a better reading of Scripture really is the, old, the whole Bible is chock full of law and grace. That's very, very important. Okay, where else are we going from here? Um, And then I want to stop and try to make some things a bit practical.
But where we're going is very, very important. We're looking at temple. Um, let, me, let me phrase this really, really quickly. When you, when you think of a temple, I'm not asking you to think necessarily about the biblical temple, but when you think of temple, what comes to your mind? What is it? What happens there? Why, do, why did cultures have it? What, uh, what in the world is a temple for? Class? Special use, okay. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, Doug? Just by okay. We're not doing barbecues there or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Special place. Okay. Good. What else? Okay. A gathering place for believers. Okay. Yeah. What else? Sacrifices are happening. Did I hear what over here? For worship? Yeah, good. For worship, sacrifices are happening. Right. What's that? Yes, for praise. Right. But here's why. But here's the question. Why is all of that happening in a temple? What? It's where God is. Every culture... A temple was always seen as the place where God is. That's, that's not just an Israelite feature, okay? I mean, that's why you have these old, even in the pantheon of the Greek gods, that's where they made their presence known. I mean, if you look at other cultures, even before the Greek empire, it's the same way. This is very, very important. It's the idea of temple was sort of, what a temple was for, you just, it would have been as simple as saying, what color is the sky? And people would have said, temples are where gods live. That's how it works. Well, this is very important. That's right. And you're going to steal my thunder. If you steal my thunder, I'm going to make you come up here and teach. Okay? No, I'm just playing with you. Um, uh, but here's what I want us to see. What the house resembled and pointed to. Take a look at this at the first temple. Now, what I'm about to go through is not... This is, this, uh, the majority of this comes from a guy who Darwin mentioned, a guy named Greg Beale. He wrote a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. It is about 400 pages of amazing stuff if you have the fortitude to make to sift way through it. If not, listen up for the next five minutes because it is awesome. He says this, his thesis is powerful. I love it. Uh, I, uh, I don't, it's, it was amazing to me to be able to read it. But he says this. He says, that uh, God's mission is not just about getting people saved. It's about extending His presence and rule through all of the cosmos. You have to remember that's what God is about. But from the very beginning, God has had His space and man has had their space. God lives in, help me class, heaven, His space. Man lives down on the earth in His space, right? And we see that even at creation. Man's place was the habitable world and God's was the invisible places, though He certainly walked with Adam and Eve as well. Now, the temple and the tabernacle, and listen, and what they were modeled after is something that Psalm 78 teaches us. And it says this. I'm just, uh, verse 69, I don't have it on my thing, so I'm going to read it to you. You want to go there, Psalm 78, verse 69. He is saying, uh, the psalmist is, that that the temple itself, that God's sanctuary, is modeled after something else. It's modeled after something else. Let's read about what it says. It says this, 
it says that he built, God did, his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he founded forever. One of Beale's major points in his argument is that the tabernacle and temple were modeled after the first temple known as creation. And there was a three-part structure in creation. The habitable world, which is where you and me live on earth. The heavens, the stars with their starry hosts. What we think about space, what you see at night. And then thirdly, the idea where God dwelt in His uninhabitable space known as heaven, singular. A three-part structure moving with increased levels of holiness into the holy place where God lives. Now, this is very, very important because what he is saying is is that uh, even the temple and the tabernacle themselves were modeled after something else, something much greater. And where we are going, this idea of the last temple, look with me at Revelation. Turn there. Revelation chapter 21. Trying to watch our time because we're going to fly through the rest of this. But... One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Revelation 21. Listen to what he says there. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. That's, that's temple language. The sea, uh, for, we'll, we could talk about that later. And he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. In other words, there is this picture of a latter-day dwelling dwelling place of God as well. Now, it's really important. You can go and uh, read in this and and the different points in... uh, throughout the the Scriptures. I can give you a couple of references. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 and Revelation 21... Uh, talk about how the stones that are similar there and that new uh, in the temple that were embedded in the temple there uh, are very they're very very similar to the idea in Revelation 21 verse 18 where we see these stones the wall itself being uh, pure gold clear as glass sapphire emerald that sort of thing and then also something that I find very very compelling the um, the holy of holies the holy place in the tabernacle. And in the temple were a perfect uh, cube. Their height, width, and breadth were all was a perfect cubic structure. And notice then uh, as well in Revelation 21, if you still have that there, in verse 16, uh, where he says this: "The city lies foursquare; its length the same as its width." And uh, the uh, idea there being that in verse, in again, 16, its length and width and height are all equal. Now, I'm not trying to just, you know, let's try to just connect the dots there and look, look how wonderful that is. But it's interesting as a compelling piece of evidence that John in his vision is basically saying this. I saw the new heavens and the new earth. Ready? It looked like a new city coming down. And the idea there is, he's saying that uh, this new city, as far as it goes, there is no other uh, there is no other room outside of this perfect cube that he's talking about here. And people have thought about this for a long time and said, "What in the world is John talking about? New heavens, new earth. 
and this temple language, this holy of holy language. What is, what, how do we reconcile these two? And Beale's thing, uh, thing is, and I think it's brilliant, he's saying, John is saying that the day is coming where uh, all that exists in the new heavens and new earth is the holy of holies. That's all that exists. Why? Does anybody want to take a stab? God's dwelling places with man. Is there any need anymore for a holy place where people can't go? No. Is there any need for an outer court? No. Because why? The dwelling place with God is with man. That is utterly staggering to me. To think about how the temple itself is telling us something more and more and more about where the story is going. Now, push pause. If you were in church this morning, or if you're going to be, I will ruin it. Spoiler alert. Okay. Uh, Darwin was so quick to say that when Jesus uh, was decrying the temple, meaning that I'm going to take the stones, there won't be a stone under unturned. He is basically saying this that I am the new temple. That everything the temple pointed to about what? What were temples about, class? They were about what? God's presence. Everything that that building pointed to is fulfilled in me. In me. And after His ascension, we see something else beginning to happen as well. Let me read you a couple of quotes here. The temple of God will encompass not only His whole people redeemed from every tribe, nation, people, and language, but the whole cosmos within which we will serve Him as kings and priests. Beale says this as well, The new creation and Jerusalem are none other than God's tabernacle, the true temple of God's special presence portrayed in Revelation 21. It was this divine presence that was formerly limited to Israel's temple and began to expand through the church and which will fill the whole earth and heaven, becoming co-equal with it. Then, the eschatological goal, that means the end-time goal of the temple, here it is, of the Garden of Eden, dominating the entire creation, will be fulfilled. What a majestic picture. I mean, it, it makes me almost want to weep to think about that's the story that we're a part of. That that is what God is up to, and nothing less. And this is your story. This is where you are headed. This is what we are learning about, uh, even as we learn about the temple. I said this there, the future people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, gives us a glimpse of this new community. Do you remember what Paul is talking about there? He's saying the dividing wall of hostility between man and God has been broken down. And that we are... uh, Turn there. Turn there in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to stop in five minutes. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the hands by flesh. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Pause. The idea there is this. You were outsiders. You were. But now what? 
You have been brought in because the mission has continued. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, temple language right there, holy of holies language, curtain language. How? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. The idea of Jew and Gentile. There is one new man called Christian, called a Christ one. That is the picture there. And then he goes on he says this in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Still in my thunder. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, uh, being joined together, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This idea of temple language runs straight through the church because now that's why we say the church is the very dwelling place of God. We are God's temple. This is where He lives. He dwells now not in bricks and mortar, but in His people. And why would that be so important? Well, now we're back to mission. Here it is. Lastly, what the house resembled... Sorry, lastly, um, worship and mission. I want to draw the strand by saying, if God is in our dwelling place, if He is with us, His people, and we have tasted and we have seen and we have known the great joy of being in fellowship with this One, then what? John Piper says this, I love it. Worship is the goal and the fuel of mission. Think about that. The goal is what we're going for, but it's also the fuel in the tank to get us there. Okay? It's the goal and the fuel of missions. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Why does he say that? He means there are people out there that don't know the living God. Because they don't know Him, mission exists. That's why we go. We've tasted and seen the glories and the beauty of Jesus, and that compels us to go out. Um, And this is where he's saying this as well. I love this. He says, we will speak about what we delight in. Therefore, we must constantly be coming back to the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ crucified. We learn to love things by watching other people love them. That is a principle that is shot through in the way that we do life. I never played golf. I didn't grow up hunting. You know why? Because that's not what me and my dad did. I got nothing against hunting and golfing. I just never saw anybody hunt and golf for the majority of my life. Instead, I spent Saturdays on the baseball field calling balls and strikes because that's what my dad did. And he loved it. And as I watched him love it, you know what I did? I came to love it. I came to enjoy it. The idea there is what are we loving? What do we enjoy? And how in and of itself does that fuel, as it were, mission? You'll remember this, and then this is where we will land the plane. The landing gear is coming down, okay? Living sacrifices. Do you remember in Romans chapter 2? Paul says, you are now what? You are a living sacrifice. He says this. He says in chapter 2, 12, verse 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think about that. Where were sacrifices presented? temple, okay, and you are to be these living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ironically, Paul is saying that our very lives are to be sacrifices. 
Even in the Old Testament, God didn't want worship that was devoid of the heart. Empty forms, an empty shell of men and women who play at church, who play the Christian life, this simply isn't consistent with who we are. You remember Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You remember Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Why? Because they are utterly devoid of any sort of heart. You remember Jesus' own words where He looks at the religious leaders and calls them whitewashed tombs. He says the spread of their hypocrisy made their followers twice as much sons of hell. His words are the same to us. How are we living out our lives? How are we showing to the world that our Heavenly Father is crazy about us? That He's nuts about us? How are we fleshing that out? Well, if for you've forgotten that today, consider this gentle and warm reminder. God is nuts about you. He delights in showing you good and showering affection and kindness upon you. And one day His children will be with Him, no distance, no more doubting who we really are, and sin itself will, be, not, will not even be a memory. That is where we are headed. When the temple, the Holy of Holies, floods the entire cosmos, and to do so is a very missional move. It is God's mission, sort of come, uh, come full circle, mission complete. That is where we are going today. It is uh, 10.45 Uh, What questions might you have? If you don't have questions, interact with me for two minutes on this. Where do you think what we have covered today, uh, what we've looked at today, if it is true, and I do believe it is, how do you think that this would begin to change the way that we live our lives or the way that we're considering who we actually are as God's people? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bigger picture. My life for yours because it's not about me and what's going on. Yes. Thank you, Courtney. Yes, Doug. Okay. Mm. Good. Janet. Okay. Less fretful. I mean, God's with us, right? You realize one of the great promises of the gospel is you can't screw up your life. It's a lot of freedom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What else? Anybody? Yes. Holiness in the day to day. If God's in our midst, what will that look like? Yeah. You started out with Defender, and what I, the first thing that popped into my mind is uh, I, want to be, I want the Lord to protect me from my own defective character. There it is. Martin is saying this very vulnerable moment. I want the Lord to protect me from what? My own defective character. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, David. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I'll say is, is just a reminder that salvation history... What God is doing in the world doesn't happen off in the corner and the events of the other parts of the world happen over here. No, God's history is embedded in what is happening even now. 
And I think this is a wonderful thing for us to even be reminded of, that God Himself is on mission even now. Let me pray for us and uh, ask the Lord to bless the rest of our day. Our Father in Heaven, uh, could it be that You really are doing all of this? That You um, have broken down the temple's walls, that you have, run the temp- you have given us Your presence in Jesus, and now by Your Spirit You indwell Your people, this holy temple. Uh, we ask that You would remind us of Your presence with us, that You would give us a fresh taste, that You would bring seasons of refreshing, as the book of Acts reminds us, that we might be a people who live on mission such that the nations might know, beginning from our own front door in our neighborhoods to the ends of the earth, who this great King of kings is, who this great Redeemer and great Defender is. We pray this, Lord, that You might be known in all corners of the earth. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it.